0: Chapter One of Pomander Walk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Pomander Walk by Louis Napoleon Parker. Chapter One Concerning the Walk in General. It lies out Chiswick way not far from horace walpole's house where later miss pinkerton conducted her academy for young ladies it is still there although it was actually built in seventeen ten but london has gradually stretched its tentacles towards it and they will soon absorb it where marjolaine and jack made love there will be a row of blatant shops and sir peter's house will be replaced by a flaring gin palace It has fallen from its high estate nowadays, and Mrs. Poskett's prophecy has come true. One of its dainty houses, I think it is the one in which the Mrs. Pennymint live, is now indeed occupied by a person who earns a precarious living with a mangle. Even in the days I am writing about it was old, 95 years old, and had seen many ups and downs, for I am writing of events that took place in 1805 the year of trafalgar the year of nelson's death at that time it was a charming quaint little crescent of six very small red-brick houses close to the thames facing due south and with a beautiful view across the river why it was called pomander walk is more than i can tell you there is a tradition that the builder had inherited a beautiful gold pomander of venetian filigree and that the word struck him as being pretty, and having an old-world flavour about it. It certainly conferred a sort of quiet dignity on the Crescent, almost too much dignity indeed, at first, for it seemed to make the letting of the houses difficult. Common people fought shy of it because of the name, yet the houses were so small that wealthy folk, the quality, wouldn't look at them. Ultimately, however, they were occupied by gentlefolk, in reduced circumstances People who had an eye for the picturesque people who sought retirement and the owner was happy In 1805 it had grown mellow with age The red bricks of which it was built had lost the crudeness of their original color and had acquired a delicious tone restful to the eye Pomander walk was in fact one of the prettiest nooks near London it stood and stands on a little plot of ground projecting into the river at the upper end it was cut off from the rest of the parish of chiswick by pomander creek which ran a long way inland and formed a sort of refuge for lazy barges one of which was generally lying there with its great brown sail hanging loose to dry chiswick parish church was only a little way across the creek but in order to get to it you had to walk very nearly a mile to the first bridge and i am afraid sir peter antrobus too often made that an excuse for not attending more than two services on a sunday the little houses were built in the sober and staid style introduced during the reign of her gracious majesty queen anne now deceased the architect had taken a slyly humorous delight in making them miniature copies of much more pretentious town mansions each little house had its elaborate door with a shell-shaped lintel each had its miniature front garden divided from the roadway by elaborate iron railings and each had an ornate iron gate with link extinguisher complete You might have thought the houses were meant to be inhabited by very small Dukes so stately were they in their tiny way The ground-floor sitting rooms all had bow windows and in each bow window the occupants displayed their dearest treasures generally under a glass globe a Glance at these would almost have been enough to tell you what manner of people their owners were in the first at the top corner of the crescent stood the model of a man-of-war the second displayed a silver cup with the arms of the city of london carefully turned outward for the passer-by to admire respectfully the third showed a stuffed canary the fourth was empty i will tell you why later the fifth presented a pinchbeck snuff-box and the sixth and in the sixth there was an untidy pile of old books in the front of the crescent lay a delightful lawn always admirably kept jim sir peter antrobus's man mowed it regularly every saturday afternoon this lawn was protected on the riverside by a chain hanging from white posts you never saw posts so white as those were for every saturday evening jim a very active old sailor in spite of his stiff leg gave them a fresh coat of paint he even went so far as to paint the chain as well in the lower corner of the lawn and facing the bend of the river stood what the inhabitants of the walk called the gazebo a little shelter formed by a well-trimmed boxwood hedge in which was a rustic seat sir peter antrobus and mr brooke hoskyn would sit there on warm summer evenings and discuss the news of the day or let me rather say the news of the day before yesterday for the only journal they saw was a three days old globe which sir peter's cousin sent him when he had done with it and when he thought of it the great charm of the gazebo was that it was sufficiently removed from the houses to ensure strict privacy the ladies of the walk who shared fully in their sex's attribute of curiosity could neither see nor hear what went on in its seclusion and sir peter who thought he was a woman-hater was all the more fond of it on that account in his own house he really could not talk at his ease for his voice had by long struggles against gales acquired a tremendous carrying power the party wall was very thin and his next-door neighbour mrs poskett was or at least so he imagined always listening but the pride of the walk was a great elm tree standing in the centre of the lawn and shading it delightfully a very ancient tree much older than the walk indeed the crescent had in a manner of speaking been built around it at its base jim there was really no limit to the things jim could do had built a comfortable seat which encircled its trunk and this seat was the special prerogative of the ladies of the walk when it was not occupied by mr brooke hoskins numerous progeny i think i have told you all that is necessary about the external features of the walk you must see it with sympathetic eyes if you are not to laugh at it a little crescent of six very small old red brick houses in front of them six tiny gardens full at all seasons of the year of bright old-fashioned flowers then the highly ornamental railings and stately gates then the red brick pavement or sidewalk Then a broad path and then the lawn the elm tree and the gazebo beyond this the Thames bearing great brown barges up to Richmond or down to Chelsea according to the state of the tide and the parish church of Chiswick half buried in the foliage of stately trees, as a fitting background you could not find a quieter more peaceful or more forgotten spot near london in a month's search for the only way into the walk was along a very narrow path by the side of pomander creek a path the children of chiswick had been sternly forbidden to use and which even their elders only attempted when they were more than usually sober for fear of falling into the creek so although the walk was nominally open to the public it was not a thoroughfare as you had to go out the same way as you went in. Strangers very seldom found their way into its precincts, and to all intents and purposes the lawn and the gazebo had grown to be the private property of the inhabitants. As their rooms were extremely small, they made the lawn a sort of common drawing-room, where they entertained each other in a modest way with a dish of tea. After Mr. Basil Pringle, and madame la and her daughter had come to live in the walk there would even be music on the lawn madame would bring out her harp mr pringle his violin and marjolaine would sing quaint old french ditties i pitied the unhappy stranger who stumbled into the walk on such an occasion the music would stop dead teacups would hang suspended half-way to expectant lips and all eyes would be turned on the intruder with a stare which, if he had any marrow, would infallibly freeze it. Then to see Sir Peter throw his chest out, march up to the stranger, and ask him what he wanted, in a voice which masked a volcanic rage under courteous tones, was to behold a thing never to be forgotten. All the stranger could do was to stammer an apology and beat a retreat but for days the memory of the unknown danger he had escaped would haunt him sir peter antrobus admiral sir peter antrobus was not a person to be trifled with i assure you in the first place he lived in the corner house as you entered the walk this gave him a sort of prescriptive right to sovereignty you must also consider that he was an admiral and that his gallantry had earned him a knighthood he was indeed the only specimen of actual nobility the walk had to show though mr brooke hoskyn could by much pressure be induced to admit that if any one had his rights and if lawyers were not such scoundrels he himself but he always broke off there and left you wondering what degree of the peerage he had claims to but sir peter was undoubtedly a knight and this title gave him the in all the walks social functions Not only that but the walk looked up to him as its natural leader and adviser. None of the inhabitants would ever dream of making any little improvements to their houses without f- having first consulted the Admiral It was he who determined when the lawn needed mowing the gazebo trimming And it was he who fixed the date for painting the woodwork and railings of the houses also he chose the color a good useful green and Anyone who had dared depart from the precise shade chosen by him would have heard of it He was to all intents and purposes an autocrat and the walk trembled at his nod His rule was very gentle however He kept his one remaining eye steadily fixed on the walk but although it wore a threatening frown and could flash in fury The expression lurking in its depth was one of affection he loved the walk with all his heart he was proud of it with all his soul his one ambition was to keep it as spick and span as his own quarter-deck had been i think indeed he confused it in his mind to some extent with that quarter-deck for in his little garden he had erected the model of a mast on which he hoisted the union jack with his own hands regularly at sunrise and as regularly struck it at sunset and once when the regent had gone by in the royal barge on his way to richmond he had come out in gala uniform and dipped it in a royal salute in the finest style the admiral was salt from head to foot and right through he used to call himself a piece of salt junk For he had been at sea ever since he was a lad of ten His bravery and high spirits had cleared the road for him at a time when the sea was a path of glory for British mariners And his culminating recollection was the Battle of Copenhagen in which he had taken part with Nelson His only cause for complaint was that he had been put on half pay too early Was not a man of sixty hale hearty and in the full possession of all his faculties worth two whippersnappers of thirty and Did the loss of an eye disqualify him? Could he not spy the enemy as quickly with one eye as with two as a matter of fact? You could only use one eye with a spyglass and so what was the good of the other? Answer him that very well then But these outbursts only came in moments of great depression Generally after his monthly excursion into town to draw his pay On these occasions it was his habit to visit the coffee houses where sea captains of his own standing congregated In the afternoon he would dine with a few cronies at the hummums Later he might take a taste of the newest play at Covent Garden he maintained that the drama, like the navy, was going to the dogs. And after the play, there was usually followed a jorum of punch and a churchwarden pipe in some hostelry where glees were sung. Then, in the small hours, he would be lifted into an old ramshackle shay by the faithful Jim. Jim would be lifted beside him, and together they would steer a devious course towards Chiswick, where the village constable was on the lookout for them and would pilot them along the perilous creek unlock the door for them and deposit them safely in the passage what happened after that which saw the other to bed or whether either of them ever got beyond the foot of the stairs it were the height of indiscretion to inquire an english gentleman's house is his castle and if an english gentleman is too tired to go upstairs that is nobody's business but his own the walk was always aware of these excursions and on the mornings following upon them it had become the rule to make as little noise as possible so as not to disturb the admiral's repose when he ultimately woke on such mornings it was small wonder he took a jaundiced view of life prophesied the immediate stranding of his majesty's entire fleet owing to a puerile navigation and was generally in his least amiable And least hopeful mood. Small wonder also that he railed against a purblind and imbecile government for putting a seasoned officer on the shelf. A headache modifies one's outlook, and, as Mrs. Poskett was fond of saying, one should be especially considerate with a man, more especially a sailor man, the day after he had drawn his pay, most especially a sailor man who, at the mature age of sixty, was still a bachelor. If sir Peter was a bachelor that was not mrs. Poskett's fault. She herself had only narrowly missed belonging to the minor nobility Alderman Poskett her deceased husband had died just as he was right for the shrievalty, And sure enough the year he would have been sheriff the king had dined with the Lord Mayor and Poskett would infallibly have received a knighthood had he been alive mrs poskett felt in a confused way that she had been badly used and that the walk would only be stretching ordinary courtesy very slightly by addressing her as lady poskett unfortunately this never occurred to the walk and as mrs poskett was determined to achieve the title somehow she had cast her eyes on sir peter the latter however had not been a handsome midshipman and a still handsomer captain without acquiring considerable experience in the wilds of the sex and so far mrs. Poskett's blandishments had met with only negative success Mrs. Poskett lived next door to the Admiral and to her great distress There was a sort of subdued feud between them a feud she could do nothing to abate Could she be expected to get rid of Sempronius for the sake of Sir Peter? in the first place it is not so easy to get rid of a long-haired yellow persian cat once in a fit of desperation at the failure of her siege of the admiral's affections she had put sempronius in a market-basket and she and Abigail, her little maid fresh from a charity school had carried him quite half a mile and let him loose after a tragic farewell in the middle of a cabbage field But when they got home disconsolate, there was Sempronius washing his face in front of the fire, as if nothing had happened. After that, there was never again any question of getting rid of him. If the Admiral really feared for the safety of his thrush, why didn't he get rid of the thrush? Only once had Sempronius been found sitting on the roof of the osier cage, and extending a soft paw downwards through its bars the thrush was singing blithely all the time and you could see by the expression on sempronius's face that his only feeling was one of admiration for the song but the admiral had taken on amazingly and stormed and sworn and promised to throw sempronius into the river if he ever caught him at such games again since that day mrs poskett had felt that she had a very uphill task before her "'but she had set herself to work to become Lady Antrobus "'with increased determination. "'She was heartily encouraged in this by Miss Ruth Pennymint, "'who lived in the third house from the top corner, "'lived there with her much younger sister, Miss Barbara. "'Miss Ruth, elderly and kind-hearted, "'was an inveterate matchmaker. "'As she explained to her bosom friend, Mrs. Brooke Hoskin, "'My dear,' she said, I've lived three years with a tragic instance of what comes of blighted affections, and I'll take precious good care nobody else's affections get blighted if I can help it. To which Mrs. Brooke Hoskyn replied, And well I understand your meaning, Ruth, for if Mr. Brooke Hoskyn hadn't asked me to marry him, what I shouldn't have done I don't know. Whereupon the two ladies, for no obvious reason, wept together and were greatly comforted it seems that miss barbara had years ago been more or less a fiance to a lieutenant in the navy not a young lieutenant an elderly lieutenant with several characteristics which were doubtful recommendations but time had softened the image of the gallant tar in miss barbara's recollection and the more it receded the more romantic it had become until now she was not so much in love with her recollections of him as with what she could remember of the ideal she had set up in her own mind in the flesh lieutenant charles no one ever heard his surname had been a very short puffy man with a completely bald head his language was interlarded with expletives suitable perhaps to intercourse with rough sailors in a gale but devastating on shore in the company of ladies personally i am not at all certain he had ever actually proposed to miss barbara i don't believe he knew how the two ladies were living near the docks at the time with their father who was something in linseed and i have no doubt lieutenant charles found the old man's port wine agreeable And liked to bask in Miss Barbara's pretty smiles. For Miss Barbara was very pretty indeed, a bonny plump little thing, by nature all mirth and laughter. She did not so much walk as hop like a little bird. She was altogether like a bird. Her father had always called her his dicky bird. She kissed just as a bird pecks, and when she spoke or laughed, it was exactly like the twitter of birds setting down to sleep at sunset whether she had ever really been in love with the lieutenant is another question i must leave unanswered it is only barely conceivable to be sure girls do fall in love with the most improbable men even short and puffy ones and perhaps the lieutenant's strange oaths bewitched her in some inexplicable way the only evidence of practical romance i can bring forward is that the lieutenant did undoubtedly present miss barbara on one of his homecomings from distant parts with a gray parrot with a red tail to be sure he may have found the bird an intolerable nuisance but this is an ill-natured suggestion whether this gift was intended as a hint whether the parrot was meant as a dove and harbinger of a coming proposal or whether it was an economical return for much liquid refreshment the world will never know for the same night the lieutenants inglorious career came to an equally inglorious end this combination of what might with a little violence be construed as a lover's gift with the tragic loss of the lover was the turning-point in miss barbara's life henceforth she convinced herself that she had been engaged to marry charles and she vowed herself to perpetual spinsterhood and the care of the parrot the care of the parrot was no such easy matter the bird had made a long journey in the lieutenant's cabin and had acquired all the lieutenant's most picturesque expressions he was not therefore a bird you could admit into general society with any feeling of comfort for although he was generally sulky in the presence of strangers he would occasionally and when you least expected them Wrap out a string of uncomplimentary references to their personal appearance and consign them body and soul to unmentionable localities with a clearness of utterance which left no doubt as to his meaning. When Papa Pennymint died, it was found that linseed had not been a commodity for which the demand had been sufficient to build up anything approaching a fortune as a matter of fact the old man had died just in time to avoid bankruptcy and the two ladies had been obliged to sell their pretty home and to take refuge in permanda walk out of reach of the genteel friends who had known them in the days of their prosperity Of course the bird had come with them But he had not left his language behind and Barbara was forced to keep him shut up in the little back parlor out of earshot there she spent at least one hour with him every day listening as she told the sympathizing walk to her dead lover's voice and it was this constant companionship with the loquacious bird which had fostered and developed in her mind the legend of her unhappy love as a detail i may as well add here that barbara had christened the parrot dr johnson in honor of the mighty lexicographer about whom she knew nothing Except that an engraved portrait of him used to hang in what her father called his study, and that when she asked him who the original was and what he had done, he said, Oh, but I don't know. Seems he talked a lot. The parrot talked a lot, and so he was called Dr. Johnson. I should very much have liked to hear the observations the giant of Fleet Street would have made had he lived long enough to be aware of the compliment. How the Mrs. Pennymint made both ends meet was a never ending subject of discussion between Mrs. Poskett and Mrs. Brooke Hoskin They regretfully came to the conclusion that the two ladies positively worked for their living. This was a serious aspersion on the walk, but there was a worse one. A little while ago, a young man, well, a youngish man, with one shoulder a little higher than the other, had come to live with the Pennymints. At first they let it be understood that he was a distant cousin come on a visit, but when weeks passed, and then months, he could no longer be described as a visitor, and the walk had to face the fact that not only did the Mrs. Pennymint work for their living, but that they also kept a lodger. At first the walk was consoled with the idea that at any rate he looked like a gentleman, and might possibly be one but lately it had been discovered that he was a mere common fiddler and played every evening in the orchestra at vauxhall gardens yet in spite of this ungentlemanly profession the man did undoubtedly behave like a gentleman moreover it was very difficult to tax the mrs Pennymint with their ungenteel goings-on because there was not an inhabitant of the walk who had not experienced some kindness at their hands I hope I have conveyed the impression of a quiet and contented little community I am sorry to have to add that there was one fly in the amber of their content in the early spring of 1805 a mysterious figure had suddenly appeared in the walk a Fisherman a gaunt creature in an indescribable slouch hat the sort of hat You do not pick up when you see it lying in the road His bony form was encased in a long, nondescript linen garment, something like a carter's smock-frock. This had once been white, but was now of every shade of brown. It had enormous pockets, bulging with unthinkable contents. One morning the walk had awakened to find him sitting at the corner where Pomander Creek empties into the Thames, Sitting on an old box with a dreadful tin vessel full of worms at his side sitting fishing The walk rubbed its eyes and wondered what the Admiral would say When the Admiral came out of his house he stopped aghast Then he gathered himself together for a mighty effort But it came to nothing you cannot argue with a man who refuses to argue back the fisherman met sir Peter's first onslaught with the curt public thoroughfare and Then definitely closed his lips Sir Peter raked him fore and aft but never got another syllable out of him Ultimately he retired baffled and beaten Henceforward the fishermen came to his pitch every day except Sunday The walk grew accustomed, if not reconciled to his presence by slow degrees They spoke of him among themselves as the I End of chapter 1